Here's everything you might have missed in Obi-Wan Kenobi Episode 6. Once again, it is Obi-Wan's day, my dudes. Welcome back to the final breakdown of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. We're gonna break down that ending and all the Easter eggs and hidden details that you might've missed in just a moment, but in order to do so, we need to spoil what happens in the Obi-Wan Kenobi finale. So if you haven't seen it yet, look out because there's spoilers ahead. Go! Okay, let's get into it, shall we? The Grand Inquisitor's words from episode five loom large over the Obi-Wan Kenobi finale. Revenge does wonders for the will to live, don't you think? <laughs> That's his voice. Indeed, that drive for vengeance is what fueled Reva all these years, it's what let the Grand Inquisitor overcome being a Sith kebab, and as we see in this episode, it's what kept Darth Vader going in the face of immense pain and hardship. However, vengeance is ultimately a hollow pursuit, as illustrated by the twin storylines of Obi-Wan squaring off with Vader and Reva hunting down a young Luke Skywalker on Tatooine. Neither storyline ends with those seeking vengeance leaving fulfilled. Rather, it only leads to greater suffering. You know what? Maybe Yoda was really onto something. Hate leads to suffering. What does that got to do with anything? The episode itself begins with Reva out bullying local water bully Groff Ditcher. This is the same desert Shrek of a foreman that we saw in episode one, where Obi-Wan was too broken and defeated to stop him from stealing another worker's wages. Now, considering that she survived getting impaled by Darth Vader's lightsaber, it's a miracle that she's even walking. However, as we see in this episode, she's grievously injured. Not like General Grievously, because he's actually dead, just enough to give Uncle Owen a fighting chance with some loose crates. <laughs> of course, with that said, the Lars family is surprisingly prepared for intruders. Not only do they have a panic room in which to stash Luke in case of emergency, but they have a hidden cache of cycler rifles. Now, special shout out to Aunt Beru, who turned out to be a certified badass. She goes from zero to Joan Wick in 60 seconds flat. Meanwhile, in a shot that parallels the opening of A New Hope, Vader's Star Destroyer, the Devastator, chases down Obi-Wan and the rest of the Path survivors from Jabim. Things are still looking pretty jablique on the ship, but Leia uses Lola to entertain the kids, including Corrin, who might be the son of the Jedi Val Horn, as teased by Orabesh writings on the wall in Path Hideouts. Now, among the crew, you can also spot a familiar face, the High Republic show host, Christina Ariel. While Obi-Wan gets the fallout equivalent of everyone disliked that for his plan to once again sacrifice himself, he correctly assesses that Vader can't resist settling the score. Before he leaves, Obi-Wan gives Leia a gift, Tala's holster engraved with notches for each Force-sensitive person she helped save. And this is very likely the same holster that Leia wears in the canonical Star Wars comics. By the time of A New Hope, though, Leia is a crack shot, so it makes sense why she's disappointed the holster's empty. It's empty. Well, I wasn't gonna give you a blaster, Leia. Bidding farewell to Leia, Roken, and the rest of the Jabim team, Obi-Wan beelines to a nearby world full of fog and rocks that is just perfect for lightsaber dueling. Fantastic lighting here. The Grand Inquisitor tries to explain why it's smarter to go after the members of the path, but Vader's need to face down his old master clouds his judgment. Flying in the ST-321, his personal Lambda shuttle, Vader heads down to this mystery world all by his lonesome. Now, in the calm before the storm, Obi-Wan sees that Leia very sweetly slipped him her droid Lola after he remarked that it might make him feel better as well. What follows is one of the best fight scenes in the series, as Obi-Wan and Vader trade blows. Obi-Wan adopts his signature Sarisu lightsaber pose as the two use the landscape and the force to wail on each other. We also get a dark update of their exchange on Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith. 
Vader's response to Obi-Wan's I will do what I must has evolved from you will try to you will die. Eventually, Vader, tired of not having the high ground, makes his own high ground by channeling the Force through the Earth to create an earthquake, and then he looms over his master the same way that Obi-Wan loomed over Anakin in Revenge of the Sith. Vader then tries to bury Obi-Wan alive, and believing his master to be weak and defeated, Vader walks away confident in his victory. However, we see that Obi-Wan is using the Force to prevent the rocks from turning him into a fine red mist. Just as intense pressure turns coal into diamonds, Obi-Wan feels the crushing weight of history and literal boulders weighing down on him. He hears echoes from the past of Anakin during their duel on Coruscant, on Mustafar, and as Darth Vader. He feels the emotional weight of guilt over his fallen friend and apprentice. But those visions of Luke and Leia, the hope they represent for the future, they are enough to bolster Obi-Wan's spirit and give him the strength he needs to tap into the Force to his true potential. And despite Luke's assertions in The Last Jedi about how the Force isn't just about floating rocks, well, Obi-Wan begs to differ. I feel something. You feel it? Yes, I feel it. That's the force. In the battle that follows, Obi-Wan damages Vader's breathing apparatus and takes the high ground again with an aerial move that rends Vader's helmet asunder. The broken helmet reveals part of Anakin's scarred face underneath, a moment that echoes Ahsoka's battle against Vader in Twilight of the Apprentice on Star Wars Rebels. And the vocal effect where they blend James Earl Jones's voice with Hayden Christensen's is frankly awesome. It shows the duality of this character, the man and the machine, as well as the man he was and the monster he's become. Obi-Wan tries to apologize to Anakin, but the Sith Lord tells his old master, I am not your failure, Obi-Wan. You didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did. The same way I will destroy you. And one can't help but wonder if Obi-Wan clocked Vader saying that he killed Anakin as a means to motivate Luke years later, because it's technically true... From a certain point of view. A certain point of view? During their back and forth, the lighting from each of their lightsabers represents moments of the dark side and the light side coming out, with Vader vacillating between the two when Anakin comes to the forefront. Good guys are green and blue, bad guys are red. Ultimately, though, Obi-Wan is bathed in the blue light of the light side and the Jedi, while Vader embraces the red light of the dark side and the Sith. That's just the way it works. No purple left? You, you might get purple. Having pummeled Vader with sticks and stones to break his bones, Obi-Wan has no more words to hurt his former friend. Once again, he leaves Vader to rot, battered and bruised after losing another lightsaber duel. And once again, one of Obi-Wan's mortal enemies yells his name in a fit of rage. It's a fun name to yell. He's me. This moment is equal parts heartbreaking and cathartic to see, especially now that Obi-Wan has come to terms with what Anakin has become. Now, Obi-Wan isn't the only one having intense prequels flashbacks. Reva chases Luke into the canyons near the Lars family farm on Tatooine, but when it comes time to deal the killing blow and hurt Darth Vader the same way that he hurt her, she can't do it. She sees herself as a youngling lying on the ground, and she flashes back to the gruesome events of Order 66, remembering how Anakin butchered her friends and family. Now, much to Obi-Wan, Owen, and Beru's profound relief, she winds up bringing the injured Luke back to safety before collapsing into a teary pile. Reva admits that she could not do what Vader did to her friends and worries that she's just as bad as he is. But as we know, only Sith deal in absolutes. Obi-Wan says that by choosing mercy, she has not only given her friends peace, but put herself on a path to redemption. 
And then in classic Star Wars fashion, Reva leaves her lightsaber behind on the sands of Tatooine. And folks, I'm beginning to think that between the lightsabers Obi-Wan had buried, Rey's lightsaber, Reva's lightsaber, lightsabers might well be Tatooine's number one crop, a devastating blow for moisture. Now, as for what's next, well, presumably Reva will find the nearest robot stomach dealer. Because as we know from the Book of Boba Fett, Tatooine is apparently the galaxy far, far away's leading supplier of Abstromex. Now, back on Mustafar, Vader broods in a repaired helmet inside Fortress Vader, his eponymous castle built atop the site of a former Sith temple. We saw this previously in this show in Episode 3, and it first appeared in Rogue One as the site of a dad joke to end all dad jokes. Be careful not to choke on your aspirations, Director. Vader is communicating with Emperor Palpatine, played in hologram form by the great Ian McDiarmid. Now, old Palps questions Vader's focus and commitment to the Empire, especially if he can't let the past die, as his grandson will so eloquently put it in the sequels. Let the past die. Putting aside vengeance to focus on Palpatine's mission of spreading fear, Vader assures his master that Kenobi means nothing to him, even though he totally still does. John Williams' iconic Imperial March plays in the background as we bid farewell to the Sith Lord for now. On Alderaan, we see Leia suiting up for another day of being a tiny dignitary alongside Bria and Bale. Dressed in all white with her hair in her iconic buns and wearing Tallis holster, Leia looks like the tiny spitting image of the Rebel Alliance leader we first meet in A New Hope. And while she's expecting more cousins to have to verbally eviscerate, Obi-Wan pays her a visit instead. Obi-Wan gives Leia the barest of hints about her parents, inferring that both of them are dead. More importantly to Leia, though, he returns Lola, who she promptly stashes in her empty holster. Lola! When Leia asks if she'll ever see Obi-Wan again, he tells her that if they ever need his help, they know where to find him. Now, this show does a great job at answering a question from the sequels. Why would she name her son after Obi-Wan? He's the man that helped her and her family in their greatest times of need. Of course she's gonna name her kid after Ben Kenobi. Are you kidding me? What are you gonna call him, Lola? Lola! Lastly, back on Tatooine, Obi-Wan rides his Eopi to the Lars family farm for a final farewell. His costume here with the fresh robes and the orange-tinted goggles is also straight out of the comics. Obi-Wan also finally gets to meet Luke, who he immediately bribes with that toy T-16 Skyhopper, and this is the same toy model ship that Luke has during A New Hope. Most importantly, though, we finally get the line that made he said the thing trend last night on Twitter. Hello there. Yeah! Then, as Obi-Wan rides off into the desert, a familiar face appears before him, materializing out of thin air. That's right, folks, it's Chekhov's gone, Qui-Gon Jinn, finally appearing to his wayward pupil. And with that, our Jinn watch has officially come to an end. Took you long enough. Still no Quinlan Voss, but having a Quinn watch and a Jinn watch, that might be too much for any one show to bear. In classic Qui-Gon fashion, he roasts Obi-Wan lightly before they depart into the Dune Sea, where Obi-Wan will apparently never ever moisturize until he transforms from Ewan McGregor into Sir Alec Guinness in just 10 years' time. He's me. But hey, double the suns, double the sunburns, I guess. As for what the future holds for our heroes, well, you've probably seen Star Wars, right? Star Wars happens. Now, it's entirely possible they could do another season of Obi-Wan somewhere down the line, but this very much felt like a self-contained story meant to bridge the gap between the prequels and the original trilogy. Besides, we have much more important questions to answer, like who saved Grogu from Order 66, and why was it Quinlan Voss? Good watch. 
Anyway, folks, there you have it. That is everything we spotted in the final episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi. If you want even more deep dives into the galaxy far, far away, good news, we've got you covered over on Nerdist.com. For now, though, tell us what did you think of the finale? What did you think of the Obi-Wan series? And did you spot anything that we missed? I don't know. Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com. Thank you.